Preface of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Preface. I suppose it was environment that caused me to write these novels. But the mystery of it is that when I left my native village, I did not dream that imagination would lead me there again. For the simple annals of our village and domestic ways did not interest me. Neither was I in the least studious. My years were passed in an attempt to have a good time, according to the desires and fancies of youth. Of literature and the literary life, I and my tribe knew nothing. We had not discovered sermons and stones. Where, then, was the panorama of my stories and novels stored, that was unrolled in my new sphere? Of course, being moderately intelligent, I read everything that came in my way, but merely for amusement. It had been laid up against me as a persistent fault, which was not profitable. I should peruse moral and pious works, or take up sewing, that interminable thing, white seam, which filled the leisure moments of the right-minded. To the personnel of writers I gave little heed. It was the hero they created that charmed me, like Mrs. Porter's gallant Pole, Sobieski, or the ardent Ernst Maltravers of Bulwer. I had now come to live among those who made books, and were interested in all their material, for all was the glory of the whole. Prefaces, notes, indexes were unnoticed by me even Walter Scott's and Lord Byron's. I began to get glimpses of a profound ignorance, and did not like the position as an outside consideration. These mental productive adversaries abased me. I was well enough in my way, but nothing was expected from me in their way, and when I beheld their ardour and composition, and its fine emulation like a sheep before her shearers, I was dumb. The environment pressed upon me, my pride was touched, my situation, though tolerable, was not to be endured. Fortunate or not, we were poor. It was not strange that I should marry, said those who knew the step I had taken, but that I should follow that old idyll, and accept the destiny of a garret and a crust with a poet, was incredible. Therefore, being apart from the diversions of society, I had many idle hours. One day, when my husband was sitting at the receipt of customs, for he had obtained a modest appointment, I sat by a little desk, where my portfolio lay open. The pen was near, which I took up, and it began to write, wildly like planchette upon her board, or like a kitten clutching a ball of yarn fearfully. But doing it again, I could not say why, my mind began upon a festival in my childhood, which my mother arranged for several poor old people at Thanksgiving. I finished the sketch in private, and gave it the title of A Christmas Dinner, as one more modern. I put in occasional fiblets about the respectable guests, Mrs. Carver and Mrs. Chandler, and one dreadful little girl foisted upon me to entertain. It pleased the editor of Harper's Magazine, who accepted it, and sent me a cheque, which would look wondrous small now. 
I wrote similar sketches, which were published in that magazine. Then I announced my intention of writing a long story, and was told by him of the customs that he thought I lacked the constructive faculty. I hope that I am writing an object lesson, either of learning how, or not learning how, to write. I labored daily, when alone, for weeks. How many sheets of foolscap I covered and dashed to earth was never told. Since, by my infinite pains and groans, I have been reminded of Barkis in David Copperfield, when he crawled out of his bed to get a guinea from his strong-box for David's dinner. Naturally, I sent the story to Harper's Magazine, and it was curtly refused. My husband, moved by pity by my discouragement, sent it to Mr. Lowell, then editor of the Atlantic Monthly. In a few days I received a letter from him which made me very happy. He accepted the story, and wrote me then and afterwards letters of advice and suggestion. I think he saw through my mind, its struggles, its ignorance, and its ambition. Also I got my guinea for my pains. The Atlantic Monthly sent me a hundred dollars. I doubt but for Mr. Lowell's interest and kindness I should ever have tried prose again. I owe a debt of gratitude to him which I shall always give to his noble memory. My story did not set the river on fire, as stories are apt to do nowadays. It attracted so little notice from those I knew, and knew of, that naturally my ambition would have been crushed. Notwithstanding, and saying nothing to anybody, I began the Morgesons, and everywhere I went, like Mary's lamb, my manuscript was sure to go. Meandering along the path of that family, I took them much to heart, and finished their record within a year. I may say here that the clans I marshalled for my pages had vanished from the sphere of reality. In my early day, the village squire, peerless in blue broadcloth, who scolded, advised, and helped his poor neighbours, the widows or maidens, who accepted service as a favour, often remained a lifetime as friend as well as help, the race of coastwise captains and traders from Maine to Florida, as acute as they were ignorant, and rovers of the Atlantic and the Pacific were gone not to return. If with these characters I have deserved the name of realist, I have also clothed my skeletons with the robe of romance. The Morgesons completed, and no objections made to its publication, it was published. As an author friend happened to be with us, almost on the day it was out, I gave it to him to read, and he returned it to me with a remark that there were a good many witches in it. That there were, I must own, and that it was difficult to extirpate them. I was annoyed at their fertility. The inhabitants of my ancient dwelling-place pounced upon the Morgansons, because they were convinced it would prove to be a version of my relations, and my own life. I think one copy passed from hand to hand, but the interest of it soon blew over, and I have not been noticed there since. Two men, I began, as I did the others, with a single motive. The shadow of a man passed before me, and I built a visionary fabric round him. I have never tried to girdle the earth. My limits are narrow. The modern novel, as Andrew Lang lately calls it, with its love-making, disquisition, description, history, theology, ethics, I have no sprinkling of.
my last novel, Temple House, was personally conducted, so far that I went to Plymouth to find a suitable abode for my hero, Angus Gates, and to measure with my eye the distance between the bar in the bay and the shore, the scene of a famous wreck before the Revolution. As my stories and novels were never in touch with my actual life, they seem now as if they were written by a ghost of their time. It is to strangers from strange places that I owe the most sympathetic recognition. Some have come to me, and many I have had letters that warmed my heart and cheered my mind. Beside the name of Mr. Lowell, I mentioned two New England names, to spare me the fate of the prophet of the gospel, the late Maria Louise Poole, whose lamentable death came far too early, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who lived to read the Morkinsons only, and to write me a characteristic letter. With some slight criticism, he wrote, "'Pray pardon my frankness, for what is the use of saying anything unless we say what we think?' Otherwise it seemed to me as genuine and lifelike as anything that pen and ink can do. There are very few books of which I take the trouble to have any opinion at all, or of which I could retain any memory so long after reading them as I do of the Borgesons. Could better words be written for the send-off to these novels? Elizabeth Stoddard, New York, May 2, 1901 to Mrs. Catherine Hooker of Los Angeles, California. These novels are dedicated in grateful remembrance of a kind deed. Elizabeth Stoddard End of Preface Recording by Julia Lenardin